Hello and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on tech disruption and how it is driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Deeksha Gera, and I lead payments and fintech research at Bloomberg Intelligence, an independent equity research arm at Bloomberg. From a merchant standpoint, finding your payments partner is becoming increasingly a strategic decision than an operational one even more so as payments integrate with commerce-enabling software. There can be meaningful implications in the form of reduced card abandonment rates, enhanced customer experience, data-driven marketing opportunities, and perhaps even inventory-based pricing at an SKU level. To share more about exactly how the space is evolving, we have with us Maju Kurvila, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Bolt, that is a leading startup in e-commerce payment space. Prior to Bolt, Maju was a VP and GM for Amazon's Global Logistics, one of the largest global engineering teams at the company, and he led the units across business, product, engineering, and operations. Before his time at Amazon, he built software and products at Microsoft, Honeywell, and Milliman. Maju holds an MBA from the University of Washington and has a bachelor's in computer engineering from Mangalore University. In his free time, he enjoys running playing soccer, and being a personal chauffeur to his two children. Welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast, Maju, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you today. Thank you, Diksha. Thanks for having me here. Perhaps let us start with you. Uh, Please tell us about your career journey and what exactly led you to Bolt. Diksha, I have been working in e-commerce for more than a decade. Worked at Amazon, as you mentioned. Had the opportunity to really see e-commerce thrive globally. And as I had the opportunity to drive global teams and help with a lot of sellers and partners, we saw the power of e-commerce and how consumers can get a much better experience from shopping through a platform like Amazon. While I saw a big scale and so big solving problems, one thing kind of came up to me is like, how do you bring some of these capabilities to merchants beyond Amazon? Because e-commerce is still in its very early stage. There is so much more innovation that needs to happen in the space. A lot of that is going to come from other players too. So really looking to see how we can drive that innovation outside. And found Bolt had that mission and has been making some early progress towards that. Um, then had the opportunity to join. And uh, we are on our journey to really disrupt e-commerce and level the playing field so that uh, e-commerce can have the growth and consumers have the the choices and the experience what they expect as we move forward. Well, awesome. I mean, what better than Amazon to talk about when you're talking about e-commerce, right? So when you think about buying something online, you might recall the traditional checkout process. It's like going through a series of steps before you finally make a purchase. First, you fill up your virtual shopping cart with the things you want to buy. Then you go to the checkout page where you provide your address, payment details, and maybe even create an account. This traditional way worked, but it was like waiting in a long queue at a store, right? And the whole purpose of e-commerce was convenience. So you might get a little impatient and sometimes people even leave the line before reaching a cashier. Fast forward to today, the e-commerce checkout strategy is all about making things seamless, aka faster, easier. And it's like finding a way to make the checkout line move quicker and smoother. Within that idea, that ethos, what are the unique solutions and technologies that are being developed to enhance that checkout experience for merchants and consumers today? Diksha, you hit on a very important problem for retailers, right? Like around 96 to 98% of visitors come to an e-commerce site, do not end up buying anything. And if you think about checkout, around 76% of shoppers drop off right at the point of checkout. That's a huge problem for retailers. And we find, especially this is proven by some of the industry players, that if you can provide a faster and better experience for consumers, you can improve conversion. That means more people end up buying. Just like you mentioned, when when you have a high-intent shopper who is ready to buy something, and when they are ready to click that buy button, and if you are asking them to go 
take your wallet, type your credit cards, all this additional friction. And especially for younger generation who are even more impatient, uh, you, you, you lose them at those friction points. So it's very obvious, uh, even with Bolt, we see that we can increase around 50% improved conversion when you can provide a faster experience versus a guest checkout experience. Um, so it's a very, very clear fact. So what merchants, when they try to solve this problem, the first thing they were trying to do is, okay, how can I create accounts on my own site, have consumers save their payment information so we can remember them and, and then whenever they come next time, we they can give them a faster buying experience. But the problem is it's very hard for retailers to create ask shoppers to create accounts. Like people generally tend to create accounts on few sites, not every single site. And unless you are like a large company like Amazon, it's extremely hard for it to create sites. And you got to remember all the accounts. That's the other big challenge, right? I, I can't seem to remember yeah. half my passwords if Apple doesn't store them. It's it. One thing is to forget the account. The other thing is to forget the password. So forgetting password is another big thing, which we'll touch on, uh, because that I do agree that is a huge problem, and 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 we actually solve that problem too. But when when merchants cannot create all the accounts or force all the consumers to create account, the next best thing is how can they, you know, like put all the third-party wallets on their site. So you, you saw the evolution of a lot of third-party wallets, obviously started by PayPal. And then over time, you know, so many different wallets got created. And now even buy now, pay later, now that exploded a number of wallets. And that really worked because when you provide that con- choices uh, or, or different choices of payments and remove the friction, consumers do tend to click on there and, and buy. But now... Fast forward to now, now you have too many of those wallets and buttons, right? Now you have a paradox of choice for consumers. Now consumers and and the merchants kind of losing that direct connection with the customer because customers end up clicking some of these third-party buttons. It launches a different experience. You don't get a lot of data from that. So it's great for a one-time transaction, but not good if you are trying to create a lifetime value with the merchant. That's a very interesting point, Maju. So I think... It, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Like all this digitization of payments, these um, evolution of diversity in payment types beyond the credit cards and debit cards into, say, digital wallets, direct account-to-account transfers, and even embedded payments like buy now, pay later, which, by the way, was a huge area driving sales this year. Um, that, on one end, provides more flexibility to your customers to be able to pay, but you're right. Like it's a challenge for merchants to be able to accept those varied uh, payment types and that to across varied uh, areas like uh, without and varied channels such as online versus in-store versus omni-channel strategies, right? So, but before we move on to that, like are there any insights on the growing adoption of these payment methods and how your merchant clients are aligning with these trends? I mean, you mentioned the buy now, pay laters are clearly seeing uh, more sales this year, right? Like, especially if you look at some verticals like food and beverages, we saw like a 79% increase of buy now, pay laters from last year. And the general retail is not that that far behind either. They saw a 52% increase in sales over last year. So the, the, the alternate payments are clearly working and it is growing. Now, the challenge is not less about whether they are working or not. There are too many of them. Now, merchants have this question of how do we provide all the different choices that a consumer is looking for, which is fantastic, uh, but it takes some work from a merchant perspective. But also, how many choices would you provide? Like when you go to Amazon, Diksha, you don't see very many other choices. In fact, you saw probably a news that recently they even removed one choice uh, because they, you just want that one buy button by the merchant. And the advantage of that is if you can provide that direct experience is you have direct connection with the consumer. You can get the data. You can build lifetime value. So the there is an inflection point of, okay, having a lot of these different choices and different options does help you with the sale but is that the right long-term strategy? And how do you bridge that short-term kind of a bump to a long-term strategy of driving lifetime value with the consumer? 
That's that's a very interesting point, Maju. And I mean, I'm always fascinated by it's such a fine balance to tread, right? Like even the major players in the space, like with PayPal and with Adyen, there there is this constant pressure to reduce friction, but at the same time, like keeping the diversity of options alive. So um, again, like within that digital payments gamut, like do you have any thoughts around how this adoption and list of priorities basically have varied across generations or other demographic lines? Yeah, so I mean, Apple Pay is clearly working really great for for on on the on on the mobile devices, especially when when you are talking about an an, an iPad. I mean, on an, any kind of Apple devices. But you see that um, if you look at the Gen Z shoppers, they prefer options like the alternate payments, uh, and especially the buy now pay later tend to be a click uh, or any kind of one click solutions tend to be. Uh, a, a bigger kind of convenient factor that people are looking for. So our view when I think of, and I think of the overall e-commerce is you cannot look at customers very broadly or even categorically and then make decisions because what you're finding is that people choices tend to be different. Some of them by gender, by age, by kind of generations but more and more individualistic preferences are coming up. And that's why kind of, you know, how can merchants really need to understand the shopper individually is becoming more and more important versus even just looking at a category level. I go back to the idea what most of retailers are trying, figuring out and trying to move forward to is how can, I build that lifetime value with the customer. How can I individually recognize the customer, provide them a very targeted experience that is very unique to what they are looking for? And the ones who are able to do that, especially with the, the advent of AI and a lot of capabilities coming in, what we are finding is that anytime, for example, simple things like we found that around 75% of shoppers would pay more for a product if the shopping experience was personalized for them, especially in the beauty segment. So that's a very high percentage of shoppers who are willing to pay. So what we are finding is that consumers need and want that very personalized experience. Merchants are trying to figure out how can I connect and engage with shoppers at that individual level? And how do we bridge that, that the gap between kind of the traditional way of seeing the customers at a more category level or a more generation level to more of that individual level. That's a very interesting topic, Marjan. I'm sure we'll spend a little bit more time around that personalization part of it as well. So, I mean, you mentioned buy now, pay later, and you mentioned the the passion that the millennial generation and the Gen Zs have for these newer payment forms. And we've actually found that within our research as well. In fact, why go far? Like even this holiday season, uh, some of the data that came out um, suggested that penetration of buy now, pay later was way higher. And we wonder if it's actually going to become one of those de facto payment methods or it'll become like table stakes for merchants to be able to um, offer that. So within that trend of embedded commerce, that's basically uh, there's another um, aspect which is allowing customers to purchase products seamlessly from within various forms of content and digital experiences, right? Such as social commerce, in-app purchases, QR codes, and more, without really needing to visit a traditional e-commerce platform. So, I mean, obviously, one of that trend, uh, one of the drivers of that trend, is the millennials' propensity to kind of Uh, you know, have everything real time and in that moment and in that instant. But are there any other factors driving this? And also, what are the problems that this creates for the payments industry to solve in your view? Well, I mean, uh, you know, again, the traditional experience of, when you think of e-commerce, the way I think is, it is still in its infancy stage because, when you go to an e-commerce site, you have to search for products, then the product get listed, you add it to cart. <clears throat> then when you want to buy it, you really have to go through all these extra steps. That hasn't changed in a very long time. Now with consumers who are very used, especially the Gen Cs, who are used to much more 
of a deeper experiential things on everything else. So you think of all the consumer app, the TikToks, the the Instagrams, the the Apple, all the different products. They are used to having a much more immersive experience where everything ro- revolves around who they are. All the content is getting streamed to who they are, what their interests are. Things are getting curated dynamically with every clicks and everything. So people are getting more and more used to the universe around them organizing to their interests, their patterns. And when they come to commerce, all of a sudden, the commerce is kind of still stuck with like a, you know, a 20 year old kind of model, which is it kind of replicating what a physical store is. You go to a physical store, everything is fixed and you walk around, you buy something and it's same in a, on an e-commerce site. I think there is a massive opportunity right now, especially with some of the new technologies that are available for e-commerce to like leapfrog the experience that you can have from a physical commerce perspective. And it's a lot of that is not, you don't have to reinvent anything, just kind of do what a lot of the other social kind of products are doing out there, which is really understanding the consumer creating a you know a, a way that things the universe of shopping kind of revolves around uh, or get curated around the individual specific interests and tastes and how you follow and that evolution you are starting to see a little bit of that with the buy now pay laters with the qr code buying with the omni channel but for really to do that when you think diksha you need to connect the consumer at every touch point of the shopper's journey, not just on your site, right? Like think about you have a physical store and you have an e-commerce site. Ideally, I want to go to a physical store and then when I come online, I want to continue my exploration of things, what I was doing. Or when I see a pop-up store, I see a QR code, I know I can scan it and it knows who I am. It or I'm seeing on a social commerce, or I'm searching on Google on a product page, I see something. When you think of that, every step of the shopper's journey, you have to be able to identify the shopper, curate the constantly curate the content in a very optimized way for that channel. And if you can produce that to the consumer, that's no more uh, just a, a, a nice to have, that's an expectation from the consumer right now, especially when you talk about the younger generation. So now the challenge to the retail are, how do you do that? And this is where I spend a lot of time on and where the bold product roadmap really is aligned to is we are building that consumer universal shopper network that is decentralized. It can work across all the retailers and across all the different channels and allow merchants to really, with simple APIs, how can you recognize the shopper? How can you get their data? How can you use that information to, to really personalize and provide a great experience? And when they are ready to buy, it's just buy with, with buy with one click. And why I am excited about this space is it's still an early stage. It's a you know it's an unsolved problem, and and we are really kind of innovating and and leapfrogging on that problem solving with a lot of these merchants. Now, Madhu, I think you really spoke like a true tech disruptor. And I, I think what really resonated with me is that a lot of what we're building in the online space is really a replication of the physical world. And it's because a lot of legacy players are driving that. The scale resides with the older, more scaled platforms and their choices are what we see a lot more than what we see in terms of what the expectation of the newer generation or the newer age customer is. So, and you're right, like 21% of retail purchases are expected to happen online this year. There were statistics and quickly departing are the days when shoppers are like, go to the local mall. The first touch point of the customer is online and we are not leveraging that. So I completely hear you when you're talking about, you know, how you kind of enable and take that, what you mentioned, like, how do you make it frictionless frictionless at the point of inspiration rather than really waiting all the way until checkout? So, uh, I mean, so these are some of the secular trends that are basically favoring digital payments, right? But it's the cyclical issues that worry a lot of investors nowadays with interest rates where they are, how long can the resilience in this consumer spend continue? And even within these spending trends, our research shows that retail has lagged 
non-retail categories like travel, leisure, services. And it's indeed been a tough year for retailers. I mean, the holiday season sales were amazing. Cyber week was record sales. But now here's the thing, right? Even with high sales, returns is a large industry issue that retailers are faced with. So what are you hearing from retailers about the scale of that problem? And how has that prevented innovation in this space? There are two issues you you touched there. One is like the experience of how how much more the e-commerce experience can can be better than a physical commerce. And the other aspect is the returns on, on how, how big of a problem that is. I mean, returns is something oftentimes get overlooked. Uh, and, you know, this is, you probably take a page from Amazon, like Amazon obsessed of the customer's experience across the board. And that's one thing I learned and it really resonated with me, with me at Amazon is that customer obsession. And it's not at one point across the board. And, and I take that every, with me everywhere I go. And it's a core pillar of both as well as we are building. And that obsession you can see on the returns as well. Like returning on Amazon is so easy and simple. And they have applied that simplicity to that level. And to understand how important returns is for customers, you think Customers deeply care about returns that 60% of the consumers won't even go back to a retailer if they have a bad return experience. 60%. Wow. So that is, you know, that, that's how important it is uh, for consumers. And uh, there is a lot of innovation and improvement that can be done. Even simple things, for example, saying, showing a return policy clearly when you are buying something. It could be a, a super simple thing, but showing that I've shown like demonstrable increase in conversion when you are buying. But at the same time, returns is a huge problem. Like some of the retail, like especially when you think of the apparel retailers, they see a high return percent of 50%. And sometimes if you are in the luxury category, you can see more than 50% of the things that people are buying are coming back. And so on one side, you want to make it easier for consumers to understand the returns so that they end up buying more. On the other side, you have to think of how do you reduce all the returns and the waste that comes from it, both from a just a transportation, packaging, and which, uh, perspective, which just has all, a lot of environmental impact, and from a bottom line hit directly on the, on the retailer, especially in a tough market like this. So... When you think of retailers, you know, I spend a lot of time um, th discussing some of this with the top uh, CEOs in the retail. And, and you think of how do you deter returns? Some of that can be making sure that you understand the consumer really well so that when they pick a product, you based on their historic purchases, you can kind of nudge them showing that, hey, this may not be the right size or maybe you should consider something different. And in that way, you are giving, or maybe if you have more details and dimensions of the consumer, you can kind of avoid a, 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 you know, a lot of avoidable kind of returns. On the other side, even taking advantage of AI and new technologies, like virtual try-ons, can you kind of really show people how it looks like or get feedback from that? Like keep that cycle going. And in that way, consumer have a better understanding of the product, how it look and feel on them. And... And a lot of this kind of innovative and simple things you could do uh, that can drive uh, the, the return reduction. And the last thing here is, if you think of even the return process itself, you see that around 70% of the consumers prefer in-store return. There's only 9% said they want to do online return. So like, you know, when if you are a, this is an interesting point because all of a sudden merchants who has both online and physical presence have an advantage both from an e-commerce perspective from a selling perspective and from a return perspective so i think there's a lot in here that people are, you know i i spend a lot of time on and others i, I, I need to think through is how do you think about returns overall like how do we make it easy, make it simple to enable the buying, make the return processes easier and simple, provide store credits, 
reduce uh, returns through making sure that people have the right sizes and also simplify the return process through through stores. Um, all of this come together, but it is a massive problem and it will continue to be a big one. And January, as we all know, is the returns peak. So it's going to hit on everyone uh, um, on this particular one. And from both, we are actually releasing some new innovative products and working with some retailers to really help them with that in this January. Oh, that's that's very interesting. So, I mean, is that correct that in some cases, the logistical cost of processing a return is actually higher than the value that the merchant makes out of a product? Absolutely. I mean, returns has a direct hit on the bottom line. On retail. So, you know, you can spend a lot of time on driving the top line growth, but returns hit you hard. In fact, it's harder because it's a direct hit and it's, uh, you know, unrecoverable because of the, the hard cost on the return. So that's why sometimes you, you know, like some of the retailers have very dynamic kind of recommendations. They say, hey, maybe a cost is below a certain level. They allow you to keep it uh, or just give you store credits. And, uh, or, or if the, you know, the, the cost is, uh, you know, the, the, there are, you can even some give a percentage discount. Like you say, if you want to keep the item, we'll give you 20% discount. Uh, would you keep it? So kind of, again, you need, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of this, you cannot do it without really understanding the consumer. I mean, if you see one of the themes I, I have is everything you want to innovate in the future, you have to really know the customer. Absolutely. At an individual level. And if you know that, that opens up the opportunity all the way from recognizing them everywhere, making sure that they have a very personalized experience, their buying is easy, their returns can be very targeted, you can provide them a much more better personalized experience all the way through. And it it, it directly impacts returns for the same reason you said, because you can make very dynamic decisions based on the customer, based on the product based on the logistic cost, all of that. Absolutely. And also, I think there is, you rightly pointed out with regards to personalization, the behaviors also vary across channels, like how people behave in online shopping could actually differ from how they behave in store and their preferences across. So, so understanding them across the entirety of those channels is it's a very valuable attribute. So uh, moving on, Maju, uh, but I mean, payment software has been around for years. Um, we are seeing early stages of payments getting integrated with commerce enabling software, wherein your endpoint terminals are connecting and feeding into your sales engine. And um, I mean, payment companies are integrating their payments processing capabilities with the gateways, your CRMs, and some of the physical costs world companies are going further and beyond and doing like staffing and inventory management solutions. But specifically to online merchants and payments, like do you see more consolidation within the payment gateway and third-party software stack for e-commerce players? Like say, for example, the analytics software and the CRMs and the ordering of the world? Well, I mean, this is one of those cycles where, you know, there is a centralization and decentralization happen constantly. And, you know, if you if you watch it long enough, like I have been in e-commerce, you see the cycles going through. I, I mean, I even th- say like, you know, there is initially there is commerce 1.0, which is Amazon. People were not even ready to buy online and everyone was afraid of buying online. And Amazon came up with the site and basically convinced everyone that it's okay to buy online and safe to buy online. And so the, that drove the entire, like drove up to 15% of the overall commerce is e-commerce last year. I mean, next year it's going to be higher around 20 plus. So uh, that a lot of that was driven by Amazon convincing consumers that it's okay to do. I call it commerce 1.0. Then came commerce 2.0, which is more like a, you know a Shopify kind of generated idea that you can have your own site and uh, you know you can drive your own traffic to it as long as you stay within our ecosystem and you know there are some limitations on what you can do uh, but you can create your own site and drive your own traffic so you started seeing a lot of that and especially pandemic accelerated that so you see a lot of individual sites uh, which has been fantastic to see that that, that growth but it has limitations like it, you know you have to stay within one ecosystem and and it kind of hits you from a size and scale perspective so it tend to mostly work for small and medium businesses mostly small businesses and then came what i call the evolution of commerce 3.0 and 3.0 is really 
kind of decentralizing the power, right? Like really saying that every enterprises can have their own stack, their own, um, you know, not only the website, they, they don't need to be part of an ecosystem. They can pick the best of the breed, connect all the different pieces together and still provide the great experience that the consumers are looking for. And that is the true, that's when the e-commerce really kind of unlocks and you get a lot more competition and choices in the market. And in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, Asia probably had a little bit more faster innovation around e-commerce than what we have seen in the in the West, especially in the US. So a lot of that innovation unlock that happens when you can truly power all retailers to really own their stack. They can pick and choose. They can innovate on, on individual components and pieces on customer experience. So in a lot of ways, Bolt is built to be that enabler to that that commerce 3.0 because one of the things you need to be completely decentralized is access to a, a large universal shopper network that can thread everything together because you don't need to be on another platform for you to get all of that. That comes to you, so you have access to it. But one core piece uh, of that commerce 3.0 is you don't necessarily need to migrate everything to a, a single stack. In fact, the migrations are becoming very expensive and time-consuming. And for a lot of merchants, they cannot spend like another year or two migrating things. And because the consumer behavior and expectations are changing super fast, the overall macroeconomics situations and geopolitical situations are changing rapidly. So no more, you cannot make plans for like, two-year migrations and big changes anymore. What's more appropriate for situations like this is how can you make rapid and continuous changes to continuously improve uh, experience for consumers, continue to drive top line growth, continue to reduce impact to your bottom line? And how do you, how do, you do that? And most of the time that means that it's not a wholesale migration. It's like what I, you know, you find the a bite-sized victory, each of the components of what you can do, and then bring all of that. So to your broader question of are you seeing more consolidation or this, I think, you know, obviously a lot of, you know, every, every technology stack out there want to consolidate more and bring more into one stack. But what is probably, what you're seeing from retailers is that they would rather maintain what they have and then changes individual component by component. Whether that's coming from the same uh, company or not is, is less of a question. It's more who has the best solution? How can I add it? And how can I do that incrementally and continuously versus having to wait a year or two to see the benefits? I, I do see your point. And also there is this additional factor of big tech kind of touching the peripheries of each of these companies in one way or the other and then integrating them into your tech stack basically increases reliance on, in a way, your competitors. So there is that aspect of it as well. Like, um, will a retailer want to kind of let Amazon run their checkout or run their... So, so yeah, I, I see your point wherein um, those preferences are kind of very valid um, in their own mind. Um, so... Moving on to the next topic, Maju, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about AI this year. So we've been asked by clients on the most practical and value-added applications of AI in finance overall. And a lot of immediate applications were in enterprise functions like your chatbots, your HR, etc. But I mean, in terms of revenue driving use cases within financial services, I think payments comes right at the forefront besides credit underwriting. Um, from your vantage point, what are some of the most compelling current and potentially future applications for AI in e-commerce? Yeah, AI has, as you know, rightfully said, has a huge impact on all areas of tech, especially when it comes to retail and even within the payments. But I would say so far and probably for the rest of the year, AI is going to underwhelm from an impact perspective on immediate top line growth or bottom line growth. And the reason for that is, you know, the AI relies on data. 
And like, you know, understanding the consumer at individual level, having first party data and access to that. So you can provide a very targeted experience. So a, a lot of that infrastructure is lacking today by a lot of the, the players. And so uh, that's why, you know, I'm working with a lot of the retailers to like really help them have have so that they can have the the shoppers, they can have their first party data, they can have all the details, so they can provide um, the uh, the the kind of impact they are hoping for. So I think the impact of that is coming. It's not quite there yet. But if you look at, I mean, you know, I mentioned one of the beauty cases before, and and we did uh, our own research survey on on this to get get some numbers. We saw that. You know, 43% of online beauty shoppers would rather have AI match their skin tone rather than drive to the store to do it in person. I mean, it's a simplifier, uh, and uh, uh, you know that that it's a it's a use case that is it's both bringing convenience as well as a simplifier when it comes to buying and conversion, and. Uh, 62% of shoppers are more likely to buy a product if they can use beauty tech to find their perfect shade or formula. So I'm not surprised at all. I mean, I have had the the staff at Sephora match two different colors to me in the same go. So I, I would kind of be in that category. I, I completely agree. I think I'll trust AI more to kind of figure that out because it's it's going to be no worse than what I'm going to get in store anyways. Yes, there you go. So, uh, but that there is that convenience aspect, right? Like, you know, there Absolutely. is, the, so I just picked on them very specific use cases to show how simple things can be. Now, if you take a step back at more of an experiential level, like on how a consumer can, I mean, even think of simple things like, I mean, today you have a live streaming um, examples that are there, but imagine in the future, you you know there can be a very customized and dynamic live stream that get created specifically for a the kind of products you are interested in. It's all dynamically generated, so you like everything. You just have anything you go to buy. It's almost like you have a virtual assistant who is like dynamically creating content that's providing you with all the different choices based on the influencers you follow, based on the. Uh, the different product interests you have based on your historic purchase, it can provide. So like shifting the experience from you going and looking for things versus like a really catered experience, very targeted around you can be absolutely driven by AI. But even if you go a step further and go back into the logistics side of retail, I mean, it's not just the front end, right? Like how do you buy inventory? How do you keep track of the stock? How do you manage your supply chain how do you manage your returns how do you like price competitive your selection all of that which are all like very hard math problems and a lot of people historically does not have access to hey can solve it much more easily and readily available so i think a lot of improvement can be just base core operational discipline and operational excellence that will drive the cost down on operations behind the scenes. And that is important for the reasons you mentioned before on how retail probably this is a struggling year for them and how can they use operational excellence to reduce their cost structure behind the scenes on it. But on the same time, how do you drive customer experience improvement uh, in, and how can you be unique how can you build that direct loyalty and connection with the consumer and using the data and AI you have to really drive that to like very, very specific and targeted use cases like the ones I mentioned with the beauty. So the opportunities are kind of very wide and broad and it's still all ahead of us. I don't think we have seen what it can do yet. Got it. I mean, there's a meme doing the rounds of English singers and songwriter Ozzy Osbourne and Prince Charles. Uh, since their demographics are the same, traditional customer segmentation would have clubbed them together into one category. Like, but can you imagine like Ozzy receiving the same messaging as Prince Charles? Like, it would have been such an amazing like example to to see what uh, you know the traditional segmentation based um, product marketing etc would kind of deliver. 
uh, and there's no way yeah, that, that content couldn't resonate. It's just it's a limitation of our uh, practices until now, right? I think you spot on, Deksha. That is absolutely right. I think the traditional way of categorizing consumers right now, it's almost unacceptable. And because you cannot personalize without a person. And I think before you didn't have the technology and the infrastructure to do a lot of that. But now... That's not, I don't think that's an excuse that uh, uh, anyone can really, really have. You have to go a layer deeper. People need to be treated individually and, uh, and we can do. And, and the entire Bolt infrastructure is to help retailers to make sure that they can directly connect with the consumers at an individual level. Yeah. I mean, top brands today, like including your previous shop, Amazon, Spotify, Starbucks, all of them are kind of, they're starting to sort of move into the stage of predictive personalization, right? Where machine learning models kind of analyze a whole lot of factors and power their recommendation engine. Um, Netflix uses like vast quantities of data and AI algorithms to ensure that its viewing recommendations match that of the users. Like rather than relying on basic information, like what's your viewing history, what is your purchase history? Um, content providers are starting to explore advanced tools like facial recognition software that can kind of decipher your emotions and make more accurate uh, recommendations. So definitely early days, like there's so much more to kind of go on the personalization front. But in the same spot, like I'm sure it's not that easy, right? Like what are the what are the biggest challenges that you see retailers are facing in offering AI-powered personalization? I'm sure privacy is one of the factors, uh, security is another. Like, how are you addressing and what are some of these challenges that you are kind of seeing uh, being put to, um, in front of you? Yeah. So privacy and security and safety all go hand in hand. Like, you have to build everything with customer trust at the center of it. And that's one of the things, if you look at Bolt, we really, one of the advantages we had because we are a newer technology, so we were able to build everything with customer trust at the center and build the entire product and roadmap around it. And that's going to be critical. It's it's an, it's a non-negotiable uh, aspect going forward. And so retailers get to depend on companies like us when it comes to, to that aspect. But maybe I go back to like, how can you get more customers to create accounts on your site? And the, the number one reason, you know, number one reason people don't create accounts on merchant site, Diksha? Are you talking about posts that come to your house or getting spammed on emails? Yeah, it, it's actually, I mean, that happens after you create. The number one reason people don't create is passwords. Like people just don't want to come up with yet another password or they don't want to use their common password everywhere because they worry about their their safety. People just don't want to remember password. They like the idea of creating accounts because, you know, if you can get free benefits from having an account and do all of that, that's fine. But people just don't create without without password. So you have to remove, I think there is a passwordless evolution right now happening Absolutely. and you got to remove That's how Apple is creating the stickiness with me. Like I, I, I think I'm going to forget any and every of my password now over time because that I just completely rely on my phone to remember all my passwords. That's right. 100%. So we are providing that infrastructure for retailers also, right? Like we provide that so they can natively do that. We support biometric login. We support like passwordless OTP-based login, pass keys, all of the above so that merchants, they don't need passwords anymore. People can just log in without any of that. And so that creates the accounts. But then the second grade is how do you get first party data? Like you cannot do personalization without getting first party. And a lot of the traditional way of doing, like for example, if you're using some of these wallets or any of the alternate checkouts and all of that, you're not getting a lot of first party data. So how do you drive 
more first party data. That means you got to build solutions that are more thinking of merchants uh, first and see how can we build in a way this is helpful for merchants longer term. So they need to have that first party data. Then the question is, how do you recognize them across different channels so that you can, you know, whether you're uh, uh, you're seeing somebody. For example, we have partnered with one of big search engines to say whenever they search a product and identify product there, you click on it, we can immediately give them, you know, that in buying at the point of inspiration you talked about, uh, you can do that. Or same, you know, even some QR code buying. We did a pop-up store with Revolve uh, for their, uh, uh, their, um, their fashion week in New York. And people can just walk in, take an item, scan a QR code and boom, buy it and just walk out with it. So they found like around, you know, 33% increase in sales when they were, they provided a, a QR code guest buying. But again, how do you recognize those shoppers across channel, whether that's in a pop-up store, whether that's on a, on a, on a social media, uh, on a, on a search engine or a social media or your website or your store for so connecting all of that. Those are, the fundamental real challenges on bridging that together, especially when everywhere they use different technology stacks and when they want to control their own user experience, how do you really do that? Those are core challenges. Obviously, you know, we we, we, we help solve that for a lot of big um, multi-billion dollar retailers with that solution. But I think those are the foundation. Once you have that, then it's all about the application and the application, you know, like, like I mentioned, it doesn't all have to be some fancy use cases that make a massive, right? It could be as simple as how do you just reduce returns or, uh, and that as a directing back to your bottom line might be the most important thing. Or how do you like provide them the right product selection so you can improve conversion to very advanced use cases, uh, like we, you know, a few of them we talked about having very curated content, dynamic, and, uh, you know, selections of different choices and product, all of the above. Absolutely. So moving on to challenges for merchants to challenges for yourself, like there are a lot of smaller companies are creating like really amazing, innovative products and propositions, but this is a largely commoditized industry and there is a lot of power in scale. So you have larger players like PayPal, Adyen, and and they're replicating products and features on the go with their huge army of engineers. Um, do you see this online payment space increasingly looking like a winner-takes-it-all situation? Or how do you kind of um, fight it out and like stay relevant uh, in such a fast-paced changing industry? Yeah, I think I go back to, I think, you know, when it comes to e-commerce and payment, we're still in our early innings. We haven't even seen what, like, in a lot of ways, I feel like uh, the West, especially in the U.S., we have slightly fallen behind on innovation. And I would say that the reason for that is because a lot of these are just, everyone is looking to few large companies to innovate, and that's all we have, right? So to me, that's not enough for innovations, right? Innovation means when you have a lot of uh, innovative players who can kind of take a small portion of the problem and really go deep and then obsess over it and come up with solutions that nobody else is thinking about. That needs to happen. So I I think it would be a travesty if everything goes back to, okay, a couple of big companies, uh, everyone is looking to them to innovate. And then what you will find is, you know, other places will innovate faster and do a lot of lot of things that you know, we're, we're not seeing here. So generally speaking, that's kind of, you know, just my, my viewpoint. Now, when we speak about companies like, you know, what we do, we are agnostic to the tech stack. We work with all the payment processors. We work with all the e-commerce stacks, uh, pretty much. Uh, we have deep partnership with a lot of them. Uh, and so what we provide is choices and options to merchants. Like again, from a merchant-friendly point of view, or like what I think about is how can a merchant be successful? How can they compete? If they need to provide and or stand out, they need to provide something unique 
they cannot be just providing that everybody else provide that's not differentiated right like you know how you need to have have a very unique uh, and something that's distinct where you can delight your customers build direct relationships provide them enhanced capabilities that a lot of others are not able to do so i would i am more in the direction of how do we bring that additional edge for e-commerce like given and especially we are on the earliest stage versus trying to consolidate and making everything cookie cutter so that everybody looked the same across the board uh, would be the wrong direction in such early stage uh, in in the e-commerce and payments journey now when we think of uh, again as bold like we're starting to see a lot of momentum right like you know we moved ourselves from you know we historically supported a lot of small and medium merchants. We continue to support them as well. But we moved ourselves to larger enterprises where they have the same acute problem and they don't really have, they don't have the choice of just migrating their entire platforms or making, they, they want some solves that really allow them to maintain the goodness what they have and then augment with additional good things that companies like we can bring. So we have been able to, uh, to support a lot of great, um, you know, multi-billion-dollar merchants, uh, like the the Revolves, the Sachs of Fifth, like the Casper, the Toys R Us. Like you know, there's a lot of large merchants are using our products, and and what we are able to bring them is that we allow them to keep their technology stack. We uh, allow them to control the experience all by themselves because we are just an API. We sit behind the scenes. All all the user experience can be. Our experience is very native and inbuilt. So, and we allow them to directly connect with the consumer. We get, create accounts for them. We share the data, so they are in control. So they can build lifetime relationship. There is nobody else in the market doing any of that. So we're extremely unique in that, and our network of shoppers is growing really fast, and it's continuing to accelerate really, really faster. So. Um, we're very lucky to be in this space. We have been doing this for some time and our solutions are fairly unique and we're, we're very happy that we're here to uh, able to help retailers and innovate for them at a time they need it the most. Absolutely. And I think that ties in back to your uh, story of the centralized and decentralization of, uh, of power of, uh, of the ecosystem and bringing control and power back to the merchants in some way. Um, mm-hmm. so thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, Maju, and more power and, uh, luck to you and Bolt. Um, thanks a lot.